Well, last week we began a series uh, that was, uh, we changed from our Roman series to a series in which we are uh, now moving and following the lectionary actually, but we're using the alternative reading in the lectionary itself. So we're uh, using the Old Testament reading and we're pairing it with the gospel reading because those alternate readings are cued to those gospel readings. And so we'll follow this track all the way until we get to the season of Advent and actually just before that because we've got a couple special missions speakers at the end of November. This last week I was on the internet. Can you believe that? <laughs> CT Seal uh, has an article there in May 2021 on BuzzFeed that was titled, People are sharing common sayings that are actually completely wrong, and I can't say I disagree. <laughs> That's the title to her article. She draws on the input from Reddit users uh, for this, and she lists a number of these wrong sayings. And she actually goes through and has a much longer list, but here's a few, of us, a few for us to consider this morning. First one is, cheaters never prosper. Cheaters never prosper. Of course, a uh, Reddit user quickly commented uh, with this sobering statement, our society is built on cheating. <laughs> so apparently you can prosper at cheating at some level. Or I like this one. This one has personal ties for me. Slept like a baby. Slept like a baby. I didn't need to go to Reddit for this one. I, I just simply noted, if you meant only for a few hours at a time, waking up in the middle of the night in tears and flailing, then yes, I slept like a baby. <laughs> or this one, you've heard this before, what doesn't kill you will make you stronger. Well, that's certainly possible. What's also possible is you could be deeply wounded and maimed <laughs> and be far weaker than you were before. Common sayings, that are completely wrong in, in some sense there. And more could make this list. We could add ones of our own, maybe ones that you've passed on to your own children or that your parents have given to you. And you said, no, that can't, that can't be right. But we could add one from antiquity here, from the day of Ezekiel. We could certainly add from the very beginning of our reading there. We see one that leads off that reading, a proverb that was popular at the time that was being said in the land of Israel. Now we should note that the nation at this point, in Ezekiel's day, is one that is a nation in exile. They've left their homeland, or at least a portion of them have at this time. Ezekiel and his fellow exiles had been the first wave of Judean deportees to Babylon following Nebuchadnezzar's initial invasion of their homeland. And you can imagine when something like that happens, or I would say I can't imagine what that's like, but I suppose that you enter that with a kind of strength, resolve that says, all right, we can make it through this. Things are terrible right now, but we'll be strong. We'll, you know, stiffen that upper lip. We'll get our posture right. But then news came that Jerusalem has fallen and their beloved temple has been burned to the ground. And that would be devastating. Absolutely devastating. It's more than God has left the building. It's that the building now lies in ruins. And now they have completely devastated as a people. Michael Lawrence sheds some light on what this audience's experience might have looked like in his intro to Ezekiel when he writes this. He says, where is God? This is not a question we typically ask when life is going well, but when the bottom drops out from under us, when everything we take for granted is called into question, this is often the first question we ask. The answer we fear, the answer our circumstances might suggest, is that God has abandoned us and wants nothing to do with us. He goes on to write, and our response might be angry protestations that God is not being fair, 
or denial that anything is wrong in the first place, or despair that things could ever be different. Perhaps we even vacillate between all three of these responses. And for this ancient audience here, these woes are articulated in a particular proverb, like I said, that's been making the rounds. The parents have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. That's what verse 2 says. That sounds confusing. You hear that proverb, you go, what does that mean? (laughs) I have no idea what that's saying. Let's consider what Eugene Peterson writes in the message when he translates it this way. He says, the parents ate green apples, the children got the stomach aches. Right? The parents ate something, but it's the kids who got the stomach ache. The implication, of course, is that the travails of the present are the results of the sins of another, someone in the past, a past generation. We're experiencing this now not because of what we've done or who we are, but because of them, whoever them is. And we do that only in past generations. We also point to other people groups when we make those types of statements. It's not our fault. It's them. They're causing that. The message of the prophet here is to share that the ancients are mistaken. Their proverb is wrong. They've got it all messed up. Now some of us here might be familiar with the country music duo Brothers Osborne. Does anybody know Brothers Osborne? Is there any Brothers Osborne fans here? Does anybody like their brother? That was just a test to see if anyone's listening. But Brothers Osborne, they have a song in their catalog that describes the position of these ancients perfectly. It ain't my fault. (laughs) That's their song. (laughs) T.J. Osborne, one of the brothers, notes that the song is just about clearly all of these things you are blaming on the other, but you are the person that is making this happen. And apparently we picked this up from an early age. A co-writer of the song, Lee Thomas Miller, who collaborated with the Osbournes on the song and brought the initial concept idea for the lyrics to the writing session, notes that it was inspired by his raising of four kids. And Miller says this, I've always been amazed when I walk in the house and all the stuff is broken, but nobody broke the stuff. That's kind of amazing. You've had that experience? It ain't my fault. I think we all have stories where we've employed that line, whether it's been in our heart or we've heard it past our own lips. We humans, ancient and modern, have both a capacity and a knack for this. We do this one well. If it isn't someone else's fault, then as the old saying goes, the devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. But grace here in our text, it invites us to a different way. It invites us to another way of living than living in the it's not my fault and it ain't fair mindset. Note how the prophet's message continues. Enough with the proverb is what he says in verse 3. It's wrong-headed and doing you no favors. Instead, get honest about who is at fault here. Walt Kelly's coined 1970 Earth Day poster phrase summarizes this nicely. You may not have known this when you were back in 1970 looking at the Earth Day poster, and you read, we have met the enemy, and he is us. This generation here in Ezekiel's day is confronted for their action and even their lack of action. But not just confront it. Invited to turn away from these transgressions and wrongdoing. They're called to repent. Is that so that they can get off the naughty list? Is that why it says it? 
Is it so they can be good little boys and girls going around and Santa's going to bring them nice gifts and presents? Perhaps to some degree. Probably not as much as you think. But even more so that they might avoid their own ruin, as we see in verse 30. In the prophets, and particularly here in Ezekiel, iniquity, injustice, lawlessness, and wickedness are not portrayed here as unfortunate occurrences to be avoided, but rather the way to death and ruin. It is the highway to hell, quite literally. And even more here, God is not just looking for a person's to simply say, stop it too. But God uses this opportunity here for something more. Note verse 31. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed against me, and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. What was once headed here for ruin is replaced now. It's a life that's remade. It's a life that's restored. The path toward life instead of a path to death. That's what God wants for these ancients. And that's what God wants for you and for me. Not for us to pass down this type of road to ruin, but rather to enjoy a life that is different, a transformed kind of life, actual life. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, says the Lord God. Turn then and live. You see that in verse 32. John Goldingay in his Ezekiel commentary for the Old Testament for Everyone series, and that's the same series if you've read the New Testament portion which is by N.T. Wright this is the Old Testament side he tells the story of Rahina a trainee at Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles if you're not familiar with with Homeboy Industries it's a program that helps gang members and folks who have recently come out of prison to get a new start so it's a great great program and it's doing some really good work Golden Gay writes here one of its recent trainees Rahina describes how her parents were drug addicts and career criminals in and out of prison for as long as she could remember. She started experimenting with drugs at age 12. She was also sexually abused by one of her brothers and spent the next years in a cycle of manipulation and abuse. She ended up in prison, leaving her daughter alone as her mother had done to her. That's Rahina's story, or at least a portion of that story. Of course, there's a generational effect here that we can hear in that story. We can hear how she was influenced and how the circumstances of her life, which Many of those are terrible, terrible experiences, but how they shaped her in some ways in her own life. And we know this, this kind of generational sin, if we might say it that way. As a great deal of therapeutic conversations include the story of one's upbringing, stories about their family system, about ways that those things find expression in our present day actions and activity and even our inactivity even our sense of who we are and ourselves, we're deeply moved and affected. We're deeply crafted and marked, even marred by our family situations. In fact, in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5, the, what we know is the Ten Commandments, it reflects this sense of this in the command that it prohibits idolatry, which it talks about the general, generational effect of sin to the third and fourth generation is how it names it. But the grace being extended here in Ezekiel is a chance to break that cycle, to choose life and prosperity. For her part, Golden Gay writes this about Rahina. It says, realizing the error of her ways and having grown tired of running from her past, Rahina vowed to be stronger, no longer falling victim to others around her. 
And for the ancients, it is the possibility here in Ezekiel's prophecy to participate in an altogether different trajectory. Or what the command in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 counters the few generations of judgment with. Steadfast love to the thousandth generation. That's what God wants for us. That's what God wants for the ancients. It's extended to us, as we hear in Romans 5, even while we're still sinners. Even while we're still sinners. So then we turn our attention to Matthew's Gospel. The second reading era text. And we imagine by the first century, you know, you have all these years, you have Ezekiel's prophecy. You know, you, you probably got it all right. You got it together, right? By the time you get to the first century. Well, we see Jesus in conversation with a bunch who not so secretly have rejected his message. Posing a question to ensnare him, Jesus deftly reverses the trap with a question of his own. How the bunch answers will say a lot about their motivation here. So they choose to play dumb, right? Verse 27. However, this answer in itself is a rejection of Jesus' message once more. So Jesus then tells them a story. Hovering over this story is a looming question for the reader and the hearer. As we hear his parable at this point, the question is, who am I in the story? Which character do I fill out in that story? Do we throw our lot in with those who persist in disobedience and reject the message of grace? Or those whose thinking is changed, whose hearts are transformed, who embrace the way to life? The ancients of Jesus' day, like those in Ezekiel's, are encouraged to choose this new way forward. They're invited to that. A choice that Jesus accentuates by highlighting an unlikely lot whose thinking changed. Tax collectors. Prostitutes. These are the outsiders. These are the people that seem like they were outside of grace, outside the possibility of God's love, outside of God's people even. People to be rejected and forgotten, to be forsaken. But yet they're the ones who respond and who are welcomed and given an honored place. Of course, it would be quite a testament to the transformation that this seemingly unworthy lot enjoyed, counting themselves amongst those who turn now and live, as we hear in Ezekiel, while serving as an indictment of the inclinations of the privileged bunch who are challenging Jesus. It's another example of how the gospel turns the world on its head. Absolutely turns it on its head. So which path do you choose this morning? Which road will you uh, travel on? The question follows a thread that goes all the way back to creation itself. Life set before us or opportunity to flee and hide into the night. There's a story back in March of 1970. A gentleman named John Michael Teblak who had recently begun reading the Gospels in earnest and was impressed by what he read, particularly what's called the joy that exuded an emphasis on community that he saw in the Gospels themselves. He wanted to know more, and so he attended an Easter vigil at his local church. Tebelek was wearing his usual t-shirt and overalls. Remember, this was 1970. So, the usual t-shirt and overalls. He ended up being frisked for drugs at the church. They have a different idea of what the welcome center is there, I suppose. <laughs> and what's supposed to go down there. While reflecting on his experience, Tebelek observed this. He said, I left with the feeling that rather than rolling the rock away from the tomb, they were piling more on. 
Can't blame him. Can't blame him. He also left that experience and went on to write Godspell. If you look at Godspell, you'll notice that the, the second act of that particular musical, it draws on an old hymn. And the hymn itself is, comes back from, it's not as old as some of the hymns, but it goes back to the early 20th century of home. It says something like this, Turn back, O man, forswear thy foolish ways. Old now is earth, and none may count her days. Yet thou, its child, whose head is crowned with flame, still wilt not hear thine inner God proclaim, Turn back, O man, forswear thy foolish ways. Godspell, of course, has a much more lively version than my reading of it right there. But it's that same question that rings out to us, that rolls out to us from the prophet of old, but also in the Gospels themselves. It's a call to a repentance to experience life and transformation. Friends, this morning as we live in this current day, in our 21st century, and consider all the things that we've heard and seen, the experiences that we have, places where folks have plenty of opportunity and certainly a lot of reason to disregard the church and set it aside, to say that the message itself in some ways has been tarnished greatly by our own frisking people at the door. But for us to hear this once more to each of us, insiders and outsiders, those who are here and those who will be welcomed in the future, the question coming back to us, turn back, O man, forswear thy foolish ways, that God's voice has spoken into every generation and our generation as well. Not at a place where we're not in the muck and the mud, but rather speaking to us precisely when we're at that place and continuing to invite us to a new life to invite us to experience God's love fully, to live a life of faith. And when we do, we too might experience the joyous new life that God has for us and that great community of the inheritance of God's love. Friends, may that be so for each one of us this day and every day of our lives. Friends, let us pray together. Lord, we thank you on this morning once more for your great love. How you come and you speak to people. It's not just a command that's been set out there and if you blow it, you blew it. But rather, you even come back to say, hey, come back to life. Come experience resurrection and transformation. Come be filled with my spirit so that you might be brought and animated into life. And so, Lord, we hear that once more in our generation. We hear that today. We hear that today is the day of salvation and for us, as we hear your voice once more speaking through the voice of the prophet and the words of Jesus Christ, and now by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray, Lord, that as you are speaking to us this morning, both on campus and online, that we hear your voice clearly, calling us once more to find that place that you offer to us, that you extend to us, that you show us in Jesus Christ, that place of life. We thank you and we love you, Lord. We trust you and we ask that you would fill us with that capacity to know you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.